From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Mental illness refers to a wide range of mental health conditions, disorders that affect your mood, your thinking, and your behavior. The most common forms of mental illness are anxiety and depression. And for many who suffer, the problem is made worse by the lack of resources available to help. Today, we'll learn where we stand in treating mental illness from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll get tips on how to stay safe if you plan to exercise in the extreme heat. Or maybe just take it easy. <laughs> and the latest <laughs> That's a better research. idea. Yeah, and the latest research on testosterone therapy for older men. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, here is a rather startling statistic. One in five Americans lives with a mental health condition. Now, that's according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Of course, mental illness does refer to a whole range of mental health condition conditions, disorders that affect your mood, your thinking, your behavior. And there are a lot of different maladies that can affect your mind, unfortunately. Examples of mental illness include depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, eating disorders, and addictive behaviors. Here to discuss mental illness and the challenges facing us today is Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Dr. Teresa Rummins. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rummins. Thank you. Dr. Rummins, nice to see you because I know you spend part of your time down in Jacksonville. Correct. And the winter's in Jacksonville, summer's in Rochester. Is that how it works? Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Every month, both places, so the best and the worst of both. (laughs) Oh, that's good. So we want to talk about mental illness and mental illness as we understand it in 2016 in America. America. But and first of all, explain to us what this what this term encompasses. When we say, when you say mental illness, what are you really talking about? Well, mental illness really is defined as a mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder, and actually doesn't include the substance use disorders, which most people think that it does. And so, when you really talk about mental illness, you're talking about only a subset of the things that we oftentimes really refer to as, as all of the mental illnesses. But when we say one in five Americans has a mental illness, does that include the ones uh, who are abusing substances? No, it doesn't. So that's even more. So it's wow. really one in three Americans are affected by either mental illness or substance abuse. So that means that everyone in this country is affected by it. It's either yourself, one of your loved ones, or one of your friends. One in three. How long have you got? (laughs) Recently, uh, I've heard the phrase mental, speaking about people's mental health, instead of focusing on mental illness. Mm -hmm. So kind of talking about it in a different way. Is that something that's consciously being done, or am I just picking up on that? Well, of course, that's a positive kind of a spin, and we all want to hope that we have good mental health. But I think that... uh, Unfortunately, the facts reveal that there are a number of people who have mental illness. And mental illness is no different than any other medical condition, uh, which has been a real problem for those who have been stigmatized by having mental illness versus having a medical illness like a cardiovascular illness or diabetes. Has this uh, one in three or even one in four or one in five people uh, uh, who have mental illness or substance abuse, has that remained fairly steady over the decades or, or are there a lot more? mentally ill people 
today than there used to be? Well, you know, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure that we really know at this point. Um, There was a huge epidemiological project that was done back in the 80s, which came up with the the information back then um, that basically one in five with mental illness and one in ten with a substance abuse, which means then one in three basically have a mental illness or a substance abuse. And I think, you know, um, it's hard to know really what's going on. I think clearly... Uh, the issues with substance use disorders has skyrocketed. Uh, you, everyone's reading about it in the paper right now with the opioid epidemic that's going on, and there's a lot of synthetic agents that were not even present back in the back in the 80s. So uh, I would suspect that it's probably even more common than we really realize. Well, why do you think that is? Oh, I think it's multifactorial. I don't think there's just one cause for it. I think. Uh, more and more is expected of people faster and faster, and the stress levels are high, and people try to escape from some of it. I think that's part, a big part of what's going on with the substance use disorders. Um, I think there's, uh, as I said before, it's multifactorial. I think you know, some of the government regulations that uh, no patient should ever have pain and that physicians were going to be measured on pain and then reimbursed on pain has really contributed to the opioid epidemic. Uh, so we've gone so too far the other direction. So the physicians mm-hmm. were criticized uh, for a while because they weren't doing a good job controlling people's pain, and now we're giving out too much pain medication. Is uh, that what you're suggesting? Uh, that's that's the fact. <laughs> and what about uh, depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia? Are those more common, or are they just being better diagnosed now? Uh, I think it's mixed. I think that, you know, probably the psychotic disorders are being, um, which would be schizophrenia, are probably being diagnosed better. But I think depressive disorders are mixed. I think maybe major depression and bipolar disorder that are, have real true biological underpinnings, there's no evidence to suggest that they're dramatically changing in, in prevalence. But stress disorders that produce um, milder depression, now, that could be on the rise. And what about, you just said, the biological um, piece. Does the study of genetics right now at this time in medicine, is that contributing to some of that, figuring it out a little bit more often? We wish. Yeah? It's not there yet. How do we compare with the rest of the world uh, that's in terms a, of mental illness? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, the, the statistics are that probably, you know, one in eight people worldwide uh, have a psychotic disorder. But there's, you know, the third world nations, there's just no, there are no um, folks on the ground to really be able to measure uh, the existence of certain mental illnesses. But there are some things that um, that the U.S. has unfortunately um, really uh, taken over, and one of the big ones is opioid use. The opioids are used, um, 80% of the world's opioids are used in the United States. Wow. So when you say uh, psychotic or psychosis, you're referring to the most severe kind of of mental illness, and you said one in eight people worldwide. But what are the specific diseases that fit into that category of of psychosis? Uh, Schizophrenia is one. Drug-induced psychosis can be another, Uh, what we call schizoaffective, which is kind of a combination between schizophrenia and depression, mood 
substances. So there's a whole lot, there's a whole range of, of disorders that can be part of the psychotic disorders. And let's say depression is probably the, mo- the most mm-hmm. common other than substance abuse, right, uh, of, the, of the mental illnesses, true? Actually, anxiety is the most common. And then are, are those neuroses, or how do you tell the difference? What's the difference between a psychosis and a neurosis? Well, that's the old terms. I'm not sure anybody <laughs> uses the term neurosis anymore. Well, see, time, I went but... to medical school a long time ago, I guess. <laughs> well, you don't use those terms anymore. Uh, not neurosis. Uh-uh. No, all but, right. But um, the psychotic disorders are the ones where um, individuals have a real distortion of their thinking, uh, severe paranoia, delusional thinking. Um, they can have perceptual distortions where they're hearing things, seeing things that other people aren't hearing and seeing. Those are the psychotic disorders. They oftentimes can happen with other neurologic problems or medical conditions, you know, such as very, very severe Alzheimer's disease or dementing illnesses. People then start developing psychotic problems, and that's why you see the numbers high worldwide because they're oftentimes associated with medical conditions or other medications. Steroids can produce psychotic disorders. A lot of the substances that are abused can produce psychotic disorders. And what what is the anxiety disorders? Is that being more easily or more often diagnosed? Or wh- why the increase in the anxiety disorder diagnoses? I'm not sure that they've increased. They've just always been a high number. When they went back and did the big study that was NIH-sponsored, um, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, it was the number one mental illness, not substance mm. abuse, but mental illness then. Generalized anxiety, panic disorder, um, post-traumatic stress disorder falls into that category or, or did. Obsessive compulsive disorder fell into that category. Mm. So there are a number of different disorders that fall into the anxiety disorder category. All right, and one other comparison, Minnesota as compared to the rest of the country. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a really good question because that, uh, Minnesota, um, as progressive as the state is, has fallen way, way, way behind when it comes to really providing the type of care for the severely met, uh, mentally ill uh, really? and substance abuse. Minnesota is 50 out of 50 states in the union for the number of psychiatric beds per capita. Um, the typical type of um, numbers that people say could really be helpful to be able to meet the needs of the mentally ill is usually 50 beds per 100,000. Minnesota has 3.9 beds per 100,000. We are the worst state in the union. As a result of that, Tom, we have people sitting in our emergency rooms across the state, not for hours, not for days, not for weeks, but for months just sitting in the emergency room waiting to be able to be transferred to a hospital where they can start getting ongoing care. Well, that alone is pretty depressing. Where are all our tax dollars going? Can't figure oh, it out. That's a different show. That's <laughs> different exactly show. right. We're that's talking exactly about right. mental illness with psychiatrist Dr. Terry Rummins. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Most people with depression never make it to treatment. Is that a myth or a fact? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about mental illness in America with Mayo Clinic psychiatrist, Dr. Terry Rummins. Dr. Rummins, myth or matter of fact? Most people with depression never make it to treatment. They never seek treatment. Is that a myth or a fact? 
Well, it's kind of complicated because those with mental illness, not just depression, only 40, 40% of individuals who have a mental illness or a substance abuse will actually get care. So if you're going to broaden depression to include all of mental illness and substance abuse, then you're absolutely correct because only 40% will really receive treatment. But, uh, I want to ask you, Terry, there has been a significant increase in life expectancy over the past few decades in the United States. Now, men and women on average are living to be about 79 years of age. But recently, the CDC said that there's actually been a decrease in life expectancy, and I think it was particularly true among white women. I, am a, I want to know if opioid use, alcohol use, uh, other mental issues have anything to do with this? You're absolutely right. And the three main reasons that there's been a decrease in life expectancy in the U.S. in the last few years are related to three primary things. One is suicide, one is firearm deaths, and the other are motor, motor vehicle deaths. Uh, suicide is self-explanatory. That's a mental, that's associated with mental illnesses and substance use. The thing that I think people could be very surprised about is firearms. Because of the way the media produces a, a lot of hype around homicides, most people would think that most firearm deaths are related to homicides. Surprisingly, that is not the case. Two-thirds of deaths by firearms are suicide. So that's another major mm. mental health substance use disorder. And you can imagine, I know the statistics are trying to be uh, accrued at the CDC, but they haven't been publicized yet. But if you look at the motor vehicle accidents that result in death, probably the majority of them are associated with somebody that's, in, that's associated with that accident having been using some type of substance. Uh, so Although texting may overtake that substance. You're absolutely simple. correct in the, in the future. But right now, and with this data that has the life expectancy decreasing, all three of the major causes for the decrease in life expectancy have some association with mental health or substance use disorders. Another interesting fact is the, you know, just the health impact of mental illness and substance abuse. You know, the ten leading causes of death that are rising versus those that are decreasing, like cancer deaths are decreasing. But there are 10 conditions where the actual death rates are increasing, such as um, unintentional injury, COPD, strokes, Alzheimer's, drug overdoses, suicide, firearms, uh, being septic or having a major infection, liver disease, and homicide. Of those 10 things, eight of them, 80% of them are associated with mental illness or substance use disorders. So they are having a huge impact, um, uh, you know, worldwide. Even just the suicides alone have increased by 25% in the last 15 years. Suicides have increased by by 25% in the last 15 years. You were talking about uh, the financial impact of mental health, mental illness, and those things would fall into that category for sure. No, absolutely. The cost for mental illnesses and substance abuse in the last 15 to 20, last 15 to 20 years have tripled, um, while all the other conditions, all the medical conditions that we're always talking about, whether it's cardiovascular, cancer, whatever else, have not even doubled. So you can just see that the impact that we're having, not just from an individual standpoint and life expectancy, but financial impact, and then so there's huge social impacts as well. You know, you were saying about uh, texting, overtaking uh, drugs or drinking during driving, right. overtaking. 
I think you could maybe make an argument that there is a mental health aspect in that, in that some people can't, it's almost anxiety if they are kept away from their smartphone or their device, or they're not able to have that texting ability right there. Unfortunately, we were born in an era where we didn't have to worry about <laughs> that, but it is a it. huge right. problem, no question about yeah. it. Is, is mental illness age related? Does the fact that people are living longer have anything to do with the increasing incidence of mental illness? Is it more common as we age? No, surprisingly, it's not. It's less common unless you want to exclude, you know, if we're excluding the neurocognitive disorders, the dementing illnesses. It's actually less common um, as you get older than it is in the youth. It's really the highest incidence is is primarily in youth. And even when you just look at the suicide numbers overall, um, the suicide rates, uh, it's a tenth leading cause of death in the U.S., period. Suicide, uh, tenth leading cause yep, of death? Right. Wow. But, it, but for those that are 10 to 24 years old, it's the third leading cause of death. It's the second leading cause of death for those that are 15 to 24. And then those are much older, it's, 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 it's less. So you can see it has a huge impact. Just suicide alone has a huge impact on our young people. All right, we've got, what, a minute and 20 seconds mm-hmm. remaining, so what do we do? What's well, the answer to all this? It, it's sort of frightening. It is frightening, but I think that there are, you know, there are really three things that can happen. One of them is what we're doing right now, and that's really trying to educate people about the facts. There's a lot of myths, as mm-hmm. you guys brought up earlier, uh, about what mental illness and substance abuse is or are and are not. Um, and so I think educating people about the actual facts is extremely important. Second is recognizing that it's a real problem. This is a real, genuine problem that is not going to go away and can't just be kind of pushed over into a corner. And then finally, acknowledging that we have to do something about it, and it's all of our responsibilities. It's not just the mental health provider's responsibility. It's just not law enforcement's responsibility or uh, faith-based community's responsibility. It's all of our responsibilities. And I think if we all work together, the government, health care, and community uh, types of groups, uh, we can make a difference. It sounds like in the state of Minnesota, we need to write our congressmen and women about the problem of mental illness right here in Minnesota that it sounds like it's not being very well taken care of. Absolutely, especially when it uh, when it uh, involves really the needed placement uh, hospital beds for those that are very ill. Because what's happened since the 1960s when Kennedy, meaning well, wanted to close many of the uh, state psychiatric hospitals and hoping that we would have community hospitals and community centers, which did not uh, really uh, manif- really develop. Uh, what's happened is that individuals who were being cared for in mental hospitals now are either being ki- cared for in jails and prisons, or they're out on the streets and homeless. Dr. Terry Romans, Mental Illness in America, 2016. Thanks so much for being with us. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn how to protect yourself when exercising in extreme heat. And later in the program, we'll hear about the latest study on testosterone therapy for older men. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Does what you eat matter when it comes to brain health? 
Mayo Clinic experts say what's good for the body is also good for the brain, and your diet may impact your risk of dementia. What's good for the heart is good for the brain. So I think many of the same features that give us good heart health will also give us good brain health. Mayo Clinic Dr. Ronald Peterson says eating a heart-healthy diet may increase blood flow to the brain. It may also impact the underlying disease process of conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. Now, what is a heart and brain-healthy diet? Dr. Peterson says it's a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and healthy fats such as olive oil. It also includes lean sources of protein such as fish. But he also says the lifestyle choice that may be even more important for your brain's health is... I would say physical exercise. Every week, try to fit in 150 minutes of moderate activity, such as walking. It will benefit your heart and brain health. Pregnancy is surrounded by myths. Two big ones are that exercise and sex are bad for pregnant women. Exercise has actually been known to improve pregnancy outcomes. Mayo Clinic obstetrician and gynecologist Dr. Yvonne Butler-Toba recommends healthy pregnant women get moving, especially with cardiovascular exercises like walking or using elliptical machines. It helps keep weight down and it may help them feel better physically and mentally. Even running is okay. However, we'd like patients to avoid exercises that might cause direct trauma to their abdomen. So no horseback riding, scuba diving, or skydiving. Now, besides exercise, the myth about sex and pregnancy is also busted. Sex and running are good. For most normal pregnancies, sex is fine. So be sure to check with your health care provider to confirm you are having a healthy pregnancy. And in other news, is dandruff the only thing standing between you and a closet full of great basic black clothes? Mayo experts say if you follow these tips, you can keep dreaded dandruff under control. Number one, shampoo regularly. Use a medicated shampoo if necessary. Number two, learn to manage stress. Believe it or not, it can trigger dandruff. And number three, get a little sun. Sunlight may be good for dandruff, but be sure to wear your sunscreen. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, whether you're running or playing tennis or going for a power walk, you know, it all sort of makes me tired just thinking about it. (laughs) Exercising outdoors in hot weather puts a lot of extra stress on your body, and you may start to feel lightheaded or suffer from cramps, all signs of heat-related illness. And if you leave it alone, you don't do anything left untreated, they can escalate into heat stroke and even become life-threatening. Here to discuss precautions you can take to prevent heat-related illnesses is Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist Dr. Michael Joyner. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Joyner. Tracy, great to be with you. Welcome, Dr. Joyner. Well, you know, it's even hot in Minnesota, and when people (laughs) are out there uh, exercising, uh, your body can overheat. And what really happens? Why why does it happen? Well, a couple of things happen, Tom. When, When you're exercising in the heat, you have to try to stay cool. Humans have this wonderful evaporative uh, cooling mechanism where they send blood flow to their skin, they sweat, the sweat evaporates, the, evap- the, the evaporating sweat cools the skin, the cool skin cools the blood. Now, that's great if it's reasonably warm and dry. But when it's hot and humid, the evaporation doesn't occur, the skin doesn't cool, and what happens is a lot of blood flow ends up going to your skin as your body tries to cool itself There's less blood flow available for your heart, your muscles, and ultimately your brain. So you overheat, 
And as you uh, point out, you know, you can eventually pass out. And part of the reasons people pass out is that their blood pressure falls and they don't have enough pumping capacity in their heart to send the blood to their muscles, their brain, and their skin. So the way to solve that problem is just to lay down so you don't have the worries about gravity. And that's what happens when people pass out. Is there a, an, a part of the population that's at greatest risk for heat-related illness? Yeah, older people, mm-hmm. diabetics, people with heart failure. If you look at um, heat strokes, uh, there's a lot of excess mortality in those sorts of people and also people with, with diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. So it's important for those individuals uh, to make sure they're in a cool environment and to stay cool. And for people who are socially isolated to uh, make sure that they get to even a cooling center in some large cities that they set up. So what's the difference between heat exhaustion and a heat stroke? Is it is it a continuum? Continuum, I mean, it, Tom. It's the same spectrum? Yeah, same spectrum. But stroke is just worse, worse you, when, you, when you pass out. Yeah, worse. What are the warning signs that uh, something is going south? They can happen pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quickly. But one of the things that can happen is people can actually stop sweating because you increase the sympathetic outflow or the fight or flight signs to your skin to try to keep the blood flow centrally to keep the blood pressure up and you actually feel cold and clammy right before you lose it. But I think you know the good news is it's it's highly highly preventable. Yeah, so tell us the symptoms. I mean, if you're out there running, what would you feel before light, something bad? Like first of all, you'd feel exhaustion. really really hot. Secondly, you might feel lightheaded. Third, you might ultimately get kind of cold and clammy skin right before the end of it. But if you're that far gone, you know you haven't paid attention to the first two: feeling really <laughs> hot, feeling lightheaded. And so, uh, if you're trying to exercise, because it's hard for me to exercise in the summer. <laughs> I pick it back up again in the fall and right. then go all the way through the winter. But man, in the summer when it's hot and humid, what is it that people should consider that maybe they don't at normal times well, of the year when they're training? A, a couple of things. One is is go in the morning when it's cool, when it's dark, when you don't have the added uh, uh, radiant heat associated with sunlight. Two is slow your pace down. Don't be a hero. Sure. Three is, you know, if you feel hot, slow down more and walk. Four is start off well hydrated and remain well hydrated. Five is don't wear a lot of clothing. You know, uh, really, really um, minimize all those things. Yeah, Yeah. right. Um, So in, in, let's say, Arizona, it's hotter than here, but it's less humid. In Minnesota, it's uh, less hot, but it's more humid. Is Are you more likely to have a heat exhaustion or heat stroke in one area than the other? Hot and humid is the worst. Is it? Yeah. You you can actually stay quite uh, cool, provided you drink enough and sweat enough in warm, dry environments. And one of the things I grew up in Arizona that you see that you don't see in Minnesota is if you look at skinny 8- and 10-year-old boys getting out of a swimming pool in Minnesota where it's 50 60% humidity, they feel fine, and it's 90 degrees outside. You watch a skinny little boy get out of a pool where it's 105 degrees and 2% humidity, that water vapor evaporates off their skin so fast <laughs> that they'll actually be shivering on the side of the pool deck, and you're sitting there thinking, how in the heck is, <laughs> it's 105. is Billy <laughs> over there shivering <laughs> when it's 105 degrees outside? But it's, it's just something to see. Speaking of little kids, and you mentioned elderly, isn't it, do I remember this right, that children and infants, toddlers, have a harder time regulating their heat, much like elderly people do? And there's a couple of different mechanisms. One of the things... That that you you have to think about is how much surface area and volume you have. 
So your surface area is how you get rid of heat. Your volume, your muscle mass, and other things is what generates the heat. So large animals, large people have a harder time getting rid of the heat. They don't sweat as much. That skin surface cooling doesn't occur. Where little kids absorb the heat from the environment. That's why it's so dangerous to leave them in a, you know, a, a warm car. And you hear about these disasters with kids, babies, dogs every so often, which are really quite unfortunate. So tell us again the preventive measures that, that one can take. Exercise in the morning. Yep. Early morning Slow before your pace it gets down, too hot, or, no matter where you live. Where yep. you live or after, after it gets dark. Um, make sure you slow down if you feel bad. You know, take your pace into consideration. Plenty of fluids. And uh, if you really feel bad, walk, and then don't don't wear a lot of clothing. Don't overdress. No, but when we were getting started, you said this is the new altitude training. You mean heat training is the new altitude yeah, training? Yeah, so one of the things that's quite interesting is, is a Mayo alum and one of my former fellows, uh, Dr. Chris Minson out at the University of Oregon, is very interested in how people regulate their blood volume. And what Chris has done is taken elite athletes, and on their easy days, athletes train in a hard, easy cycle. So they train very hard one day and easy the next day. He put them in an in a environmental chamber and had them do very light levels of exercise under very warm conditions. He showed that their blood volume went up. He showed that their uh, number of red blood cells went up. And he showed that their maximal oxygen uptake went up as well. And uh, Chris is currently uh, doing some more work on that and is uh, working with the Olympic Committee to try to understand how this could be used as sort of a natural way to improve performance. And Dr. Michael Joyner, always a pleasure. Anesthesiologist and exercise scientist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have a special report of sorts on the health benefits of the Pokemon Go game and an update on the latest research in using testosterone therapy for older men. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. If you want to play Pokemon Go, you have to get up. And the doctor who wrote the book with that title is happy to see it. Because all of a sudden, we do have people who would have been sitting on their bottoms for an evening getting up and moving around their cities. Dr. James Levine is an obesity solutions expert at Mayo Clinic. He acknowledges the possible pitfalls. People, young and old, who are wandering around staring at their screens. But he says for some Pokemon Go players, the walking that leads to winning could be a game changer. That actually releases, if you like, endorphin-like chemicals. The brain gets a buzz from the activity. Your brain has now clicked onto how pleasurable moving actually is. And from that, somebody says, hey, do you want to meet on Sunday for a ball game? You wouldn't have said yes, but now you do. It's just one example of how Dr. Levine says this get-up-and-go gaming could be a step toward a more active life. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Jeff Olson. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, all men, all us guys, experience a natural and a normal decline in testosterone levels as we get older. And typically, it's about 1% a year after the age of 40. So when you're 65, you've got probably 25% less testosterone than you did when you were 40. And in some men, that declining testosterone level causes a decrease in energy and a decrease in sex drive. But help is available through testosterone therapy, a treatment that has become increasingly popular in recent years due to the aging baby boomer population. A series of seven clinical trials sponsored by the U.S. National Institutes of Health is being used to assess the effectiveness of hormone therapy in men 65 or older with symptoms related to low testosterone levels. 
So here to talk to us about testosterone is urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Dr. Trost, good to have you on the program. Well, thank you for having me on the program. Appreciate being with you. So for a woman, when she reaches menopause, uh, the estrogen sort of drops dramatically. For a man, it just sort of gradually subsides. Fades away. Fades away. (laughs) Is that right? In some cases, that's the case. There are, of course, disease states where their testosterone will drop immediately or after cancer if you're treating for testicular cancer or something like that. But in the majority of men, it is the slow, steady decline. And in these clinical trials, let's see, seven clinical trials, what do they show? Is it a good idea or not? Well, and I'd say testosterone in general for the past decade or so has been increasingly popular, increasingly investigated. Uh, Like you mentioned with the women's health and estrogen, that was really about the 1990s or so. We had a a big push towards uh, supplementation, should there be estrogen supplementation and so on. And this is kind of the male equivalent to starting to come of age. And these particular trials in general were an attempt to look at this in a more rigorous fashion. Uh, so there were many small trials with either retrospective in nature or very limited kind of randomized trials. And here the uh, NIH essentially got together uh, with some of the uh, trials to put together a more robust set of data. So this particular one was funded by industry, but the goal was to really see does testosterone work or not. Mm-hmm. And the ca- key conclusion of the uh, trials is that, yes, indeed, it does work in appropriately selected men, but it's a modest benefit in general. So it's not going to it's not the fountain of youth. It's not going to make you 20 years old again. I think the key might be appropriate appropriately selected men. I think that might be it. So what does that mean? Well, yeah, but first of all, what are we treating here? Is it really true? Has it been shown that if as testosterone levels go down, that it does indeed decrease energy and decrease sex drive? Yep. So it's a good question. I think there's two parts to that question. Uh, in certain men who have like metastatic prostate cancer, for example, for many years, they've been treated by cutting out all the testosterone, either through uh, orchiectomy or through that injections. That means removing your testicles. Yep. 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 Orchiectomy. I, I was trying to think of a good way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you can just say it. Because... <laughs> um, but in those cases, no question, we see a, a big and broad sweeping side effects. And that includes energy, hot flashes, decreased bone mass, diabetes, all sorts of large and, and significant side effects throughout the body. Wait a minute. Guys get hot flashes? Yep. Yeah. So if you cut testosterone, or not abruptly, uh, a percentage will get pretty severe uh, hot flashes from really? it. So we do know that. The bigger question is, if you have a very slow and steady decline, uh, do you get different uh, symptoms with it? And it appears that a lot of these symptoms are based on certain thresholds. So the lower your testosterone goes, the more likely you're to have significant uh, symptoms. Uh, but perhaps even more concerning is there have been several trials showing now that as, if you look at men with low testosterone versus normal testosterone values, those who have low don't live as long. Uh, they have a much higher rate of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, uh, diabetes. High uh, blood pressure, fats in their blood. Yep, yep exactly. Uh, and so we, we've known for some time now that low testosterone is associated with multiple conditions. And now we're getting more and more data uh, showing what can supplementing testosterone do to some of these disease states. Okay, so if you uh, watch TV, it suggests that every guy out there has got low T Mm -hmm. and that ought to be taking some sort of supplement. But there must be some criteria that you use to decide who's a candidate to get this and, and, and who isn't. That's yeah. the selection of the men. That's well, what I want to know. No, and I, it's a, that is the, the golden question, I think, too. Uh, no question. So in the early 2000s, uh, this became uh, very much direct-to-consumer uh, marketing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this uh, drug, so testosterone supplementation, has been grandfathered in by the FDA uh, for this. So it's a very appealing 
uh, a target for a lot of uh, companies because they don't have to invest a lot of money in it. They don't have to go through regulation uh, for it. So there was really a boom, and it became a, uh, a um, above $1 billion industry uh, very quickly in the 2000s. Just the stuff you could get over the counter. Well, and or, you'd have to still get a prescription for it, but as okay. far as this idea of all men have low T and this is going to reverse all these symptoms, uh, so there is no no question that the appropriately selected men, which is essentially men who are uh, most guideline societies have put this around 280 as far as your blood test value for testosterone. Anyone below that is likely a, a viable candidate for testosterone supplementation if they have symptoms of low testosterone. So you shouldn't, sorry, you shouldn't take it unless you have seen a physician and had your testosterone level checked. Yep, correct. Oh, that's uh, correct. And uh, there are several studies actually showing that if you do supplement and you're in the normal range, there's no added benefit. If you compare it to placebo or a sugar pill or whatever, it's equivalent to that. Uh, so this idea of over-supplementing uh, really uh, should be uh, non-existent. Just gives you expensive urine. Yep, yep. How is testosterone therapy given? Is it a cream or is it a pill? How does it happen? There's um, multiple different ways to do it now. So in the United States, uh, uh, some of the most common are either injections or through a topical gel. Uh, there are also patches. There's things you can put in your gums. You can put in your nose. You can do long-acting injections. You can put pellets under the skin. There's uh, a million uh, ways to do it. So uh, in Europe, there's an oral pill available as well uh, that may be available in the United States at some point. And then there's off-label uh, methods of uh, giving it as well through other uh, agents such as Clomid or Arimidex or other things. So there, as of today, in the United States, there is not a testosterone pill that you can take. There's an off-label version. So you can take one like a um, Clomid, for example. It's a um, selective estrogen receptor modulator. It's a specific type of pill, and it indirectly raises testosterone, but you can't take an oral form of testosterone. That's correct. Just but in you Europe can right in Europe. Mm -hmm. So do you think it will be coming here in the near future? Uh, it's it's always tough to predict regulatory things. Sure. Um, okay. So uh, it would just be you know pure speculation on that. Uh, it seems to have merit, uh, but the FDA in general is concerned about an overreach of uh, of using testosterone. It was originally indicated for you know young boys who never went through uh, puberty who needed testosterone supplementation, and now it's been broadened into this very large category of all men as they age and or the majority of men as they age and get low testosterone values. So are there any risks to testosterone therapy? There are. They're generally mild. As long and, and the goal is if you keep someone in the normal range. So we do see some who abuse it for building muscles and things like that, and that's a whole different discussion. Mm -hmm. But if you keep it within the normal range, uh, we do monitor things like your, uh, the red blood cell count, so how thick your blood is, um, and we also monitor PSA uh, for things. So the known risks are it, it may uh, raise your red blood cell count. It can increase acne. It can potentially increase hair loss slightly. There's So there's small things like that that we monitor. Uh, the risks as far as heart disease, uh, strokes, those are really unknown. They're unlikely, but we just don't have enough data or enough uh, men to really know. The risk for prostate cancer is really nothing. If It does not cause nuance at prostate cancer. All right, so the bottom line is there may be some men who would benefit from testosterone therapy, but before you do that, see your physician, have your testosterone level checked, and only use uh, supplementation or uh, testosterone if it's low. It's an excellent summary. And does insurance cover it at this point? Uh, insurances are variable. So most of them will cover some degree, but a lot of times there's out-of-pocket of up to a, a few hundred dollars each month. Right. So. All right. There's the bottom line on testosterone therapy. Dr. Landon Trost, urologist, Mayo Clinic, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 